Welcome to another insightful episode of Stripping the Dipping. You're joined by a dynamic duo of the co-hosts, Denzel Clarkson and F1 Black. And joining us today on this episode, we've got a leading correspondent from The Sun, an individual that's at the forefront of sports journalism. So without further ado, please welcome our guest today. We have the one and only Ben Hunt in the building. Ben, how's everything Great. going? And you know, yeah, what have you been good. up to in the recent weeks leading up to the oh, F1 after the summer break? Man, it's been a very busy few weeks, hasn't it? We've had three races in a row. Um, I was working out something. It's... it's um, God, it's just been relentless. Just the amount of flights, hotels, hire cars. It's just been one thing after another. And we've got a little bit of a break now before the flyaway starts again. So it's a little bit of time just to catch my breath and sort of meet my family again for, you know, just reacquaint myself with them because it's been very hectic. Ah, oh, we could imagine, Ben. It's a very relentless life. And as you know, with <laughs> F1, and we call it almost like following the circus, there's always yeah. something at the forefront of, you know, the news, the papers, kind of the media, yeah. and always a, a story to cover or something kind of going on behind the scenes. So more than happy stop. to kind of explore that. Exactly. Yeah, sure. Sure. Exactly. So where we'll start off first, Ben, as we like to do with most of our special guests, you know, like what were your earliest motorsport memories growing up and career wise as well, you know, for the younger kids out there, like, mm. you know, looking maybe to follow the kind of uh, career and the passion that you have. Yeah. How did your journey go through the early phases of like uh, your career leading up to your role working with the sun? Yeah, sure. Um, I initially um, wanted to be a football reporter and I'm indeed I am a still a football reporter. I, I, I love football. That was my first love. But I was seven years old when I realised I wasn't good enough to be a professional footballer. So it's quite early on. Um, and I remember writing to a sports editor um, of a, a newspaper, a national newspaper, because there was a mistake in, in, the, um, in the paper. And I was like, look, this is a mistake. Um, you know, they, they'd in, incorrectly labelled the Wimbledon goalie, which had been my, my team, um, and I also said, like, look, I'm really interested in being, being a sports journalist. Could you let us know what I need to do? And and kindly, they did write back and sent me a leaflet, um, a guide how to get into journalism. And basically, it said that you needed to do your A-levels, um, go to university and then do a postgraduate diploma in journalism. And eventually you'd hopefully get a job. Um that is the, the blueprint that I was given and I kind of followed it to the letter. That is exactly what I did. So um, al alongside my, my studies, I, I worked for my local newspaper for free. Um, you know, I used to deliver that newspaper and then all of a sudden I just said, look, any chance I could write some football reports? And they allowed me to do that at non-league level um, and I carried on. And then I did my degree, my postgraduate diploma, Lots of work experience, um, lots of different places. And then I was offered my first uh, chance, an agency in London called Haters, um, very well-known agency. And when you're there, you're kind of working for the newspapers, but you don't get the necessarily the recognition or the byline. So you'd go to games and press conferences, do the interviews, uh, type them up, send them across. But then they often appear in the paper under someone else's name. So it's quite dispiriting but it's also a good place to to learn um to make your mistakes to get them over and done with um and i did make a few mistakes and you know it kind of teaches you a lot um and then i was at haters i left for another agency at wardles and then eventually i started working for the sun 
um, almost on a freelance basis. And then I was one evening I was approached by the sports editor who said to me, do you fancy doing Formula One? And I, and I was like, absolutely. You know, I'd kind of followed it as a as a kid. You mentioned my earliest memory, probably 94 um Senna's death I remember where I was, I was my dad worked at a newspaper and I remember being at the newspaper and him coming in telling me you know that you know it's really busy in there because of what's happened um and so yeah that that's kind of how it all started so I I started covering F1 for the Sun in 2012 and I've been doing it ever since so I don't know how many races I've done but it's into three figures of course and um yeah it's good fun i've seen lots of changes um bernie eccleston and into liberty media so um yeah i'm enjoying it wow that is very insightful there ben and you know there's so many key talking points to kind of take away from what you just said there as well in terms of you know firstly well your keen eye for uh you know detail and attention to detail <laughs> as well when you kind of spotted that mistake mistake in a newspaper and called them out on it you know and even today i think that you know us as the fans we almost hold the media to account you know to challenge yeah. some of the things that happen and i'm sure f1 black will probably you know delve into that route Deep later down in this podcast yeah. as well but also as you mentioned too you know going through those countless years of work experience and i'm sure yeah. like 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 you mentioned it wasn't just that you know you graduated from university and there was just a offer on the table from the sun straight right. there and then but just years of this you know grafting and and kind yeah. of learning your own craft and being able to be you know unique in your own way so when you do have your articles even like i guess with your name not being on the earlier ones the mm. style and kind of the approach you take to it would be different to most and what would grab the audience and the listeners in as well when they're checking your articles out and reading through it. So I could see the kind of link and the, the almost the symmetry of your career progression as well, which is great to see. So to kick things off a bit further there, Ben, you know, setting the scene of a Formula One news correspondence. Could you tell us kind of like, you know, could you describe what traveling to different Grand Prix is like, what some of the marketing events are like as well, and how you prepare for sure. those? And also kind of what are your funniest moments or most memorable Grand Prix weekends that you've attended so far? Um, yeah, sure. I have to have a little think about the funny ones because they become a conveyor belt. So you, you <laughs> arrive at one and then you're looking at the next. It's, it's really mm. weird. It's like, you know. And, and I still find it weird when you say to someone like last week in Milan, see you in Singapore. It's just such a weird phrase to utter. Um, similarly, I remember in my very first year, 2012, I, I remember being in a train station in Monaco um, or it was just outside Monaco and, and ordering a return to, to Monte Carlo. Like to say that phrase, I think is one of those moments where the sort of penny drops. I think we do take a lot for granted we are very fortunate in the job that we do. Certainly myself, I'm not a freelance, so my company pay for my, my travel and my expenses when I'm away. So I'm in a very fortunate position um, and I never forget that. But it is, you know, sometimes you just take it for granted. You just like onto the next race. So, you know, you see you in Singapore or see you in Austin, Texas or, or whatever it is. And it, it just becomes a phrase you say. It's like going to work. It's like, you know, see you on Monday type thing. So um yeah that's it's quite quite surreal what what it's like working um because we're not part of a team um you know the team's travel is all done by one or two people who are, are travel experts so if you're if you're working for an f1 team you literally go to the factory you drop your car off um and you meet up with everyone else and then you're on a, a bus to the airport you check in you travel together 
you get out the other end, you get on a bus, you go to the uh, hotel, and that's pretty much the way that it works. It's kind of everything's done for you. Whereas for us journalists, it's a little bit different. We're independents, and a lot of the time is, is, is booking travel and researching. So we have to source the hotels, source the routes, source the flights. Um, I then send them for approval and for a booking company, and hopefully that all gets booked and sorted. But of course, then when you arrive at the destination, it's up to you to get to the hotel that you're at. Now, sometimes you don't know what this hotel is going to be like. You don't know what public transport is going to be like. Sometimes you need to hire a car. So there's a lot of logistics. You know, when people go on holiday, sometimes, you know, if, you, if you've not done a package holiday and you've got to think for yourself when you get out the other end of that terminal, and sometimes it can be a mind-boggling place after a long flight and totally different culture, different language, different money. You know, there's loads of different factors that you've all of a sudden got to get to up to speed with quickly. So um, the travel aspect is a really big, big part of it. I think it's underplayed by a lot of journalists. I think, you know, we, we just, as I mentioned before, you just take stuff for granted. If you've been to Japan once, twice, three times, all of a sudden it becomes easier the fourth and fifth time that you go. But the reality is it's never really that easy. Um, traveling during COVID was was very different as well. And you've really got to be on top of things. So recently, um, you know, I'm always moaning on Twitter about delays, it seems, and, and cancelled flights. So that is another thing to to contend with. But the reality is, as soon as you get to the track, you, you switch on to a different mode um, and you're focused and, and you're working. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's intriguing just to kind of see the balance as well between, you know, the human element of it as well, like you mentioned, traveling, having yeah. to kind of acquaint yourself with maybe unfamiliar kind of places as well, because with Formula One, they're always going to new circuits, always expanding in new parts of the world that we've never yeah. really been to before and explored. And like you mentioned as well, there's also that professional element of when you get there, kind of just, you know, lining up the kind of questions, the agenda, you know, mm -hmm. keeping in the loop of what's going on. And, you know, it's very all encompassing so I'm sure yeah. fans will take a lot into that. And then, yeah, I mean, um, you know, was there any kind of moments you'd say are really funny in particular to a Grand Prix weekend or just um, like one I, particular I have, moment? I, I, have, I have a lot of fun. I like to play jokes on people. So sometimes it probably wouldn't be appropriate to name them, but I, I do tend to have a laugh when I can do um, when I'm away. I think, I think we need that as a little bit to keep sane, really, most of the time. But it's sort of hijinks. There's certainly races that i enjoy um more than others things like um austin are great mexico is great um you know a lot of the flyaways tend to be good and you, you have a good group um you also asked about social things didn't you and what media events um yeah there's different there's different it depends where you go really um you know there's there's different functions there was a couple in um in monza um last last week uh and there will be a couple in singapore but you know, those things have definitely been scaled back in more recent years than in previous years. So um, I think that's as teams readjust their budgets and various different other reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, there's always bits and pieces going on. There's always a press event somewhere. Um, but yeah, there's been some good ones in the past. There have been, yeah. Ah, oh, that's so exciting. Okay, well, I'm going to hand you over to our other co-host, the uh, brilliant F1 Blag. Blag, you can jump in. Thank you. Uh, hi, Ben. Fantastic Hello. to speak. Um, I'm just going to ask some short questions because I'm, I'm fascinated. Sure. I'm on the Sun website looking at, um, you know, yep. your the, your articles. Do you write mm -hmm. your own headlines? No, I don't. I, I, <laughs> and people, people do ask this, but, you know, I remember having that spat with Toto, you know, about getting a headline and 
we do, I don't do headlines. Sometimes, you know, they'll take a headline out of my intro and use that. But there's a whole team of sub-editors that come up with, with the headlines. Um, sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they make me wince. But, but generally, they're, they're pretty good, some of those, those headlines. Yeah, I was going to say, I can imagine you, like, booking a train or getting on a flight and then having to quickly, right, be creative. What yep. can I get? Because there's, there's some gold on here. You've got wheel come good, spelt W-H-E-E-L. <laughs> Uh, yep. My favourite is uh, Take It to the Max. I think that's good. Yeah. That's after Max won the race. Rear View. So when Hamilton was talking about instead of, uh, you know, being the DRS train, he'll be on the iPad watching Game of Thrones. There's so yeah. many. Yeah. yeah it, it's quite funny. Um, I think that's a skill. I mean, it is what yeah. it is. We have, a we have a competition at work for, you know, headline of the of the month, as it were. Um, mm. And there, there were various different winners of that. But uh, yeah, it, it's part of the Sun's identity. I think that I'm quite fortunate um, that I work for a publication that doesn't take itself too seriously and we can still look, have a light-hearted approach to, to headlines. It doesn't have to be all serious all the time. So um, I like to have fun with words. And, of course, you know, normally I, I have a little bit of fun with an intro. Um, that's my, my creative side of things. But, of course, the guys in the, in the, uh, in the office go next level with some of the headlines. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, like for those wondering and go check it out, there are obviously respectful headlines when you need to, you know, when Formula sure. One was paying tribute to the Queen. I don't think there were too many jokes. It was more sort of F1 remembers and so on. But that's fascinating. Yeah. You Obviously, we don't want you to don't want to get you into trouble or embarrass any of your friends. <laughs> but um, you you talked about um, the circus and, and traveling yep. and, and you mentioned sort of in a way you've got on the one hand, the teams and they're kind of traveling in a block. And then actually as a journalist, you yeah. are probably traveling on your own, but there are others in your boat, right? There are other journalists yeah. Uh, yeah. going around. So, I mean, have you formed some close friendships along uh, over the last decade? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, you, you tend to spend more time with them than you do your family. So, um, you know, I, I spend around 140 days, something like that, a year away from home. Um, and of course, that's a lot of time in a press room to be with or sat opposite someone. So, yeah, you do you do make friends. Um, you know, you, you spend a lot of time with him. I've got um, Chris Medlin from from Race to come in to stay with me this weekend. We've got Goodwood uh, Revival, and it's near where I live, so um, we're going to go along to that. So, um, but yeah, we we meet up and play golf in between races as well. So, you know, there's a few of us that that meet up um, and sometimes go for a beer in London, but. Of course, we, we're always meeting up at racetracks. So, you know, we see enough of each other, really. So it's good, though. I mean, you know, it's good to have friends. If you do have any problems, um, if you're not very well, if you can't get to the track or you're having a bit of a, a travel disaster, like the other day when, when my flight was cancelled and I was ended up at uh, Gatwick for 27 hours, you know, they can help you out. They can send you on some quotes or, or ask some questions on your behalf. So that's kind of how it works. Sort of no man gets left behind and we, we all dig each other out. So it's quite a nice relationship that we have. I mean, that sounds really, really nice, actually. There's a kind of uh, esprit de corps or whatever the word yeah. is for that coming together. Yeah. Um, there is, because, because if, you're, if you're on the other side of the world and something's not right. So, you know, for, for example, a couple of them went to Australia earlier this year. You know, that, that that's a, a long old slog um to get to melbourne if you can do it in 26 hours you've done well um and and one of the boys was was feeling ill another one tested positive for covid and of course they're both confined to their hotel rooms and then you know you need 
your mates then to start helping you out and, and getting you some food and you know medical equipment or whatever you needed and of course i'm pleased to say that they were helped out in this instance and i think if you didn't have that then it would be a very lonely job and also a very difficult job to do hmm. Hmm. well i'm glad that there's a kind of a collect a gang of you that uh sort of get on <laughs> obviously when we watch tv and in some elements of the media you see old uh, older drivers um yep. sort of appearing here and there have you formed any sort of relationships with uh, either older drivers or even current drivers as you've gone around the world or are they sort of kept a bit separate no i think um you know if you're looking um at, at sort of you know the, the english speaking ones then you know I, i've been interviewing them even when they were racing someone like jensen or, or paul Duresta. Um, or even Nico Rosberg, you know, I've got that relationship from them and I've seen how they're, they're different on the other side, you know, now that they are working within the media. Um, and then, of course, the older ones as well. You know, I never had any relationship with them prior to joining um, F1 in 2012. But, you know, since then, yeah, I mean, you speak to them quite a lot. You see them in the paddock. It's inevitable that you talk about stuff. It's not always just F1. Sometimes you just talk about life or you know, mm. take Damon Hill, for instance, you know, speak to him about surfing, you know, something along those lines or, or, or you know, it could be anything, you know, Karun as well. I speak to him quite a lot about other subjects other than F1. It's just whatever you happen to stumble across, you know, we're all together, we're all in the same boat. And if you're, it's like a place of work, you know, the paddock is an open, open place of work, but you will bump into people and, and chat, you know, it's, it's just inevitable that that will happen. Yeah, I can imagine. I, you mentioned Damon Hill, um, and you, your first memory of Formula One is the same as, as mine, actually. Um, and Damon disappeared for a bit, I guess, from the public eye, right, after he retired yeah. and he's back on Sky, and it's fascinating. Yeah. When you talk about him surfing, since he's come back, I've got a much more sort of hippie vibe from from Damon. Yeah. I mean, what, what's yeah. he like? Is he like that? 100%. Yeah, he's very... He, he sees things differently to to everyone else um and i think you know he's not afraid to speak his mind he is a a deep thinker as well which which helps um you know he's a very considered person and um i really like the depth that, that damon brings to sky's coverage i think he's a good addition um to that he's able to provide a different insight but that f1 podcast that he does is also very good as well where as mm. i say he's not afraid to speak his mind and 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 you know, sometimes you, you get some good quotes out of him from that podcast and you, perhaps other drivers, former drivers, wouldn't be willing to say what they think because they think it might be a bit too controversial. So even recently, if you if you think back to the um, Latifi uh, situation in Monza, you know, he, he's Damon's turned around and said, look, he's got to go, you know, get rid of him now. And, um, you know, most people be like, oh, hang on a minute, you know, you, you can't say that. But but Damon mm. seems to think that's his view and he's not afraid to say it. So great. Perfect. It's great for me. It's good for stories. And as I say, I like the fact that he's, he's honest and able to bring something different. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a really interesting point. You, you've brought us here. I wasn't going to go here, but just sort of talking <laughs> about, uh, you know, Latifi for a second. Yeah. Had quite sure. a difficult sort of three quarters of a season, you know, end of last year and then for this well, season. Yeah, he's what do done. He's done. What was he done? Like he must be getting on to seventy races now or something. I, I yeah. don't know the number. Um, so it's not just a difficult season, uh, half a season. You know, he's been there a long time and a really nice guy, but he's just not quick enough. And I just, I know the reasons why he's there. Everyone does, you know, the the, the family and the money and everything else. But 
I think if, if Williams are serious, I think that they've got to, to look at this situation. There's half a chance that they could make some good points in the, in the final end of the season, depending on well how Alex is now, obviously, mm. um, given his recent surgery. But, um, you know, there's real potential there in that team. And I think that, you know, they're given the impression under new owners of Doralton that they've got money and that they can make, make progress. And in order to make progress as a team, you need to have two very good drivers. And I think if I was in charge of that team, I wouldn't hesitate about getting getting Nick in the car from the foreseeable future. Well, he certainly showed the potential of the car in, in Monza, um, yep. jumping in at short notice. Well, um, you said Damon Hill was a guy that doesn't hold back. I think you've just shown that you're you're quite willing to offer an opinion. Before, well, I, before think, I, back, I, think, I, think, I think you have to be, don't you? I mean, I yeah, think that if you're... A, a correspondent working within um, an organisation, I think you have to have an opinion. I, I think reporting other people's opinions is all very well and good, but ultimately mm. you need to form your own judgment. Um, you know, one of my, my earliest um, uh, tutors was, was like, you know, you, the way you write a, a story is imagining you're, you're in a pub and you're telling your mates what happened. And I think you're very concise, you boil it down. But you obviously have an opinion about that, whether it be a football match, a goal or F1 race or, or whatever. And you inject your own opinion into the way that you tell it to your friends. And I think it's inevitable and that, that as a journalist, you should have that within you, the ability to, to make an opinion and stand by it. If you get it wrong and people correct you, as the Internet does from time to time on Twitter, definitely, um, if, if you're if you're able to put your hands up and say yeah okay fair enough I was wrong on that then then great yeah no for sure well let me ask you a kind of a bit of an opinion before I hand back to Dens which is you know you you've revealed it already I do I tend to do a bit of um LinkedIn stalking before all my interviews to to sort of look at CVs you're you're on your 10th this is your 10th anniversary season right so it's must be your 11th season yeah so going back to 2012 I mean Schumacher was still on the grid he was Maldonado won his race, etc. etc. It seems yeah, a long time yeah. ago. What, what would there, you say yeah. has changed? What are the main things that have changed? Um, the biggest change for me is an easy one, and that is the demographic of fan. Um, mm. when I used to go to those races at the, at the start, I would always be a bit surprised because I come from a football background and mm. football did a very good job of attracting um female fans, but certainly younger fans. And mm. when I went to F1, I was like, everyone is a lot older. Everyone was wearing old merchandise. So really old McLaren tops, really old Williams gear. And I was like, oh, my God, this is really odd. It's like stuck in the time warp. <laughs> and, of course, that was because, obviously, part of it was the approach that the old owners had. And I think that the new owners and opening it up and definitely Drive to Survive um, I know the prices have gone up, or, or say the same in some probably some countries, but generally the prices have gone up. But that the, the age and the demographic of fan is completely different. So, um, for instance, if I take uh, the Hungarian Grand Prix this year, mm. um, you're coming in and there's you know male and female, super young, like 16, 17, 18 year olds. Whereas, and and, and you can see that they're not only from Hungary, they've, they've made the effort to travel from Holland or wherever else they've come because they've <laughs> towing Max gear or something. But previously, there would always be a lot of Finns in, in Hungary, but generally male and generally older than me. So it, that, that for me, is the biggest change that I've seen, and that's the audience. The F1 audience has changed. Um, singly, that is the biggest difference. 
That's that's fascinating, and I think yeah, something that now you mention it is very, very apparent. Um, I'll hand over to Dens now. He's got a couple more questions. Dens, over to you. Hey, thank you so much, Black. And it's really interesting just to hear that kind of tidbit there as well, because there's a lot to unpack, especially you know when you're talking about like forming your own opinion, and then also how the landscape of Formula One has changed over the kind of years as well. So I'm actually going to ask these questions uh, back to front as such. But um, Ben, what we try to do on this podcast as well, and what we've been delving into is something I like to call motorsport diversity, in a sense yep. of not just covering F1 because you know everybody in the dog has an F1 podcast these days but you know trying to yeah. actually delve into some other motorsport series that we yeah, can okay, get other people into and of course as well you know encourage people to go and check out too so um i think mm -hmm. as georgina mentioned we've had raffiolo marcello we've had a couple of indycar guys over yeah. as well you know from a journalistic point of view ben mm -hmm. you know like how should people credit these series should they be judged in their own right you know as their own kind of marquee flagship kind of sporting motorsport events yeah. or do, do people not, are probably more so europeans have a right to perceive you know mm. series such as the sro gt3 the indycar the the yep. WEC as well as kind of like inferior feeder series yeah so. yeah I, 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 again this is an attitude thing which i i've noticed a shift certainly in recent years and that is um you know when i first came in it was very snobby in the sense that People look down at other other championships who worked in Formula One. I should say people in F1 looked down at other championships. They looked down at WEC and didn't even consider GT racing. And um, you know, in, IndyCar was just you know in the distance. It wasn't anything. But I think that recently um, we've seen a shift. I think that um, extra coverage in the UK has helped um, of the IndyCar series. I think. Um, Alonso going to WEC definitely helped um, increase that profile of that championship. And I just think that we're a bit more rounded as motorsport fans. We're probably a bit more spoilt in the sense that we have a great access to it. And, and that is an issue because I think that behind a paywall makes it quite difficult. But through um, YouTube and obviously streams, people people seem to be able to find the ability to watch anything they want these days. I think that if you have that ability, you will seek it out. And I think we're, we're spoiled with the actual quality of motorsport across all um, uh, series. So if you look at MotoGP, some fantastic races there at the moment, going to some great countries and, and really enjoying, you know, boom time, even after, you know, Rossi, who would have thought we'd be saying that? I know the British Grand Prix attendance was down, but but generally the racing this year has been fantastic and, and so many great stories there. Um, and, and similarly in, in things like Formula E, um, you know, some good stories, going to some great destinations, some great drivers. Um, so I think that people are starting to, you know, look around other championships. And, and, and if you do fall out of F1 and go somewhere else, I don't think there's the snobbery anymore of someone's definitely failed. I think it's people who are like, OK, well, fine, you can, you know, earn a good career here and, and we're not going to think anything less of you. It's 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 fine. It's just... The way that it works so i that, that's good to see i think that we're you know more um acceptable of other other championships now that's really interesting ben and then kind of on the topic of this as well kind of a similar theme too you know we've had rumors that you know colton herter the son of the legendary yeah. brighton uh, brian herter even 
might be making an entry into Formula One through AlphaTauri should, uh, obviously, Pierre Gasly get released to go to Alpine. Yeah. And just on the kind of topic of this as well, like driver profile, I think is kind of the, the thing I'm aiming for here, Ben. Yeah. How important is it, you know, for a driver's profile if they're looking to get into a big team? Because I don't know if you're following this kind of story as well. There's been like a legal dispute in one of the IndyCar teams, uh, being yeah. Alex Below and Chip Ganassi. Yeah. Yeah. over essentially um well i think it was alex below's people essentially trying to get a deal lined up with uh zach brown yeah. and a lot of people kind of come into the, the conclusion that maybe that mm. agreement might have been drawn up on the fact that um zach brown had seen that alex below had this youtube account with over a hundred thousand subscribers on it you yeah. know and other kind of extraneous things like that other than you know being the driver themselves how much does the actual relatability or the market marketability of the driver, you know, um, apply in in getting kind of like a role in one of the top teams these days? You feel? Uh, I I think well, let's let's take away top teams, but I'll reply to your your um, your your sentence and just say F one teams, and I think it's it's still very key. I think that um, you know it it wasn't that long ago we had a Russian driver driving around badly because of the the money that his his dad was able to bring to the team and i think that's the problem i think that f1 needs to reevaluate um that process because with the cost cap you know money isn't that important i say that that loosely and and, and with sort of speech marks around that the word that but of course i think ultimately if it's a championship that wants to have the best drivers in the world then it should be purely on ability but unfortunately the marketability and also the money that they bring in is still a considerable factor. I think that Esteban Ocon probably was the last driver to come into F1 um, as someone who didn't have any backing, maybe maybe Alex Albon to, to a certain extent. But, um, you know, they've all got wealthy parents. They've all been backed quite heavily from um, a young age um, by big manufacturers through karting. So, you know, that that obviously tells its own story. And I think that we need to probably get rid of that model and start picking up the best drivers, whether they're male or female, and supporting them and and seeing them get into the championship. Um, I think marketability does still hold sway. I think that um, you know there's certain drivers in F1 um, who, who who remain in the sport purely because of their their name and the money that they can bring in. And you know, uh, okay, I'll, I'll say one you know one driver, someone someone like. Um, um Robert Kubica for instance you know a great driver um had his accident yet he's still coming in every now and again for an FP1 and you think crikey you know surely there must be another driver that that team could can look at because I don't expect them to to hand him a drive so what is it actually that they're utilizing is it experience well hang on a minute they've already got experience in that team already with What's what's the purpose? Why are they getting him in? And then of course you get the cynical person that says, "Well, he's only there because because of the money." And you think that's crazy. You know, surely F1 and the team do not need the money. Surely they they need the best driver in that car that weekend. And I think that's where the situ- situation is a little bit confusing. Um, and until that model changes, then I think you're going to see mixed up grids in all the championships because of that reason. Absolutely. And I agree, you know, and I think for the for the fans as well and the listeners, it's it's also for them to kind of see the reality of how these things play out and how, you know, they create factors in, in Formula One. And actually, when you look across the pond and you see different series, how 
the money kind of thing isn't such a prevalent mm. factor. So the actual quality of the racing is much better, although it sure. doesn't have like, you know, as the youngsters say these days, the clout that Formula yes. One does because of the prestige. Yeah, so absolutely. yeah. It's, it's an interesting one though, isn't it? I mean, if all of a sudden you, you've got a championship, you know, it doesn't have to be IndyCar, it could be anywhere. Um, and all of a sudden you've got a field of very competitive drivers, then that championship can really thrive because I think that people aren't, you know, massively... I think people could be swayed is what I'm trying to say. I think that Formula One does have that history and, and that, that whole appeal. But I think if you created a championship with really good racing drivers, all, you know, doing fantastically well each weekend, and, you know, there's massive potential for a championship like that. So true. So true. And Ben, we're going to kind of go to a different kind of um, field here as well. Um, you know, with your kind of work as well, there's the good side of it, as we looked at, and the glamorous yeah. side, but often or not as well, there's the challenging aspects of it. And, you know, what I wanted to kind of find out from you was how sure. do you go about, like, like building rapport with the more difficult teams or drivers? And um, also, it's kind of like double-barrel the question. You know, there are also times where we have to kind of discuss very controversial topics or, or things which, you know, a lot of people have very polarizing views yeah. or responses on. Yeah. How do you go about like your approach to kind of, you know, writing those stories and narrating yeah. them in a way that's authentic, but also tells, you know, kind of like both sides of the story of such? Yeah. Um, the first one about um, relationship with the teams, of course, I know the teams, you know, I've been doing it long enough for that. But, you know, there are teams that I don't I don't massively deal with on a regular basis. Um, and they're ones that I deal, you know, every day with, you know, people like Mercedes. You know, I, I speak to them probably more because the two British drivers, uh, uh, McLaren, because of Lando as well. So, you know, they're the sort of teams that I will be dealing with. But if a, a situation arrives at a team further down the down the grid or, or wherever, you know, I still have the ability to to phone the press officer and say, look, you know, any chance I could get an, an answer from you on this particular topic. And I think that generally the teams are very responsive and, and, and understand that. Um, in terms of reporting difficult stuff, um, it depends on, on what, what the story is. I think that um, you know, you need to you need to judge uh what the story is and, and 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 call it how you see fit um so you know if it's if it's a row then you need to get all the facts right um understand it and then if you're able to make a decision or insert your own feelings into the piece and and you're allowed to do that with your editor's permission then fine go for it but you have to stand by it as i said earlier on but also be prepared to be you know, willing to, to correct if, if you do realise you've made a mistake because we all make mistakes. It's all based on, you know, what we're told. Um, one team may tell you one thing, one team may tell you something completely different and then you obviously need to decide for yourself what you think is truth. Um, you know, and, and, and it's kind of, you back yourself and I think that's the that's the strength, that's the ability to, to you know, to hang in there and, and to do the job for this amount of time is that you, you back yourself to make the right call on that particular story um and and as i say you just report it how you see fit um but it does depend on what the story is absolutely and i think that's fair and obviously with the line of work as well ben i think like a, a, a thick skin is required these days because you do get a lot of people out there trolling and just yeah. kind of being a nuisance and you know i think if Everyone has their own kind of way of dealing with it, but I think yeah. if people find their own way, you know, of kind of like think, not allowing that. Yeah, 
hundred percent. And I and I think that's probably the the hardest thing for an aspiring journalist now is that you know you're you you can get absolutely taken to pieces on the internet, but um, the reality is, you know, I don't, I don't really bother what those people say. Obviously, if they if they're making valid points, then I will reply and say, yeah, sure, you're right. Um, if it's just just absolute abuse, then you just block and move on. Um, you know, or, or reply with a thumbs up or, or something like that. You know, just you, you can't take it to heart. You know, a lot of these people, you know, you'll never see um in your life and, and you shouldn't you shouldn't worry too much although it may be painful if you've written an article and you because obviously when you do that when you first start you're actually putting a piece of yourself out there and you're always worried about how people are going to take it and of course if you do get negative feedback then it's quite quite hard at first um but then you just need to have thick skin and just take it on the chin and, and and move on as hard as that seems you just need to dig deep and find that ability because you always find someone that you know doesn't like the article that you've you, you've written or, or or the publication that you're working for or the, the headline that you've put on the piece or look you the mistake you've made in you know the 14th paragraph there's always someone willing to criticize so that never stops absolutely and black I'll, I'll tag you back in as well because i know you've got questions kind of on the same topic so uh yeah i'll let you in yeah and we we spoke to uh thanks uh Dems. we spoke to matt gallagher who's done work mm -hmm. on east uh wtf1 and he yeah. he said something similar about like over time you get better at sort of processing uh the trolls yeah though, you know it's not a good thing uh you kind of work through it yeah uh, and, and and I guess um, in terms of uh, I don't know what what word you'd use for it polarization maybe the one topic really that dominated over the last year was Abu Dhabi at mm. uh, the end of the season yes. and there are kind of different camps obviously as you might imagine yeah. you were you at the race yes I was yeah yeah I had yeah. um I had a I was there on my own um some organisations had two staff there. Um, to share the workload, I was on my own. I had a, I can't remember if it was eight page or 10 page pullout. And I had written every single word of this pullout and it was all ready to go. And then <laughs> half a lap from the end, that goes in the dustbin. So all that work, no one will mm. ever see because um, it all got pulped. So, um, you know, absolutely devastated um, from a personal point of view, seeing all that work go up in smoke, but also um a really disgusting end to the to the year it had been such a wonderful championship up until that point and you know both drivers deserve to win that that championship based on their previous performances and mm. to go into that final race level on points after all those races and all that covid nonsense that we'd gone through and and everything um was was incredible um and then of course the outcome um, wasn't what anyone, well, apart from Max Verstappen and the Max Verstappen fans, but it wasn't what we wanted. I think as fans, we wanted it to see see it be decided um, as per the rule book, which is what we obviously got at the weekend, and, and no one liked that either, but that's another story. Um, mm. You know, I think it just left a bitter taste. And I think that even worse um, for me um, after that, it, it, it was all a mess, obviously, but the way that it was handled, um, the FIA saying mm. they were going to do an investigation, um, you know, the rumours, Massey just totally disappearing. Um, and then obviously him getting axed and from the role. Uh, and then that report came out, 
just before the first race of the of the year, um, before well, I think it was practice three. You know, it was, it was it was just all so wrong. And when that report came out, it was just so weak. Um, it didn't address anything that we needed the answers to. Um, you know, had he been influenced and what was said and what was done, that it was missing all that content. It was just a, a, a pure review of what we already knew. Um, mm. and, that, and that left me feeling a little bit hollow and a little bit sad with regards to the governance of the sport. And I think that, you know, people need to realise that there's two organisations here, or three actually. Mm. You've got the teams, you've got F1, um, which is Liberty Media, and then you've got the FIA. And they all need to work together. But that, that was a clear example of none of them working together. And I get very frustrated because I like to think that F1's great, healthy, you know, moving along in the right direction. As I mentioned, Drive to Survive and younger audiences and, you know, great racing. But at the end of that year, from a sporting perspective, forget forget the actual result, was just wrong. It was just a mm. really bad end to a really good championship and it made f1 look really stupid and i struggle with that because i think it could be so much better um and then you feel like you you've got to explain f1 again and you know to people to you know don't worry this this was just a one-off um it's not really that bad um mm. it's actually quite a good championship but i mean the, the weird thing now however many months on um you know i look at it upon that that decision as, as F1's sort of Maradona moment, the handball, the hand of God. It's the thing that we will be talking about in years and years and years to come as an injustice. Mm. Um, but it will also just be seen as being accepted. And I think that's a that's a strange position to be in if you rewind back to Abu Dhabi there and then, because I thought that it was all going to be resolved. I didn't think that we would have this mess and this question mark over Max's first championship. Um, in actual fact, I'm pretty glad the way that he's going to win this one this year because it's so convincing. It's kind of okay, fine. Now you've got your championship, if you know what I mean. You, you, you've won this one properly. So um, yeah, it was. It was. It just didn't leave a very nice taste in my mouth. I was. I was sort of pleased that Max won, but wasn't pleased the way he did it. And then, as I say, for me, the way the FIA failed to address the questions um, in their own report, having taken what, two and a half months or three months to come up with this mm. report? It was just, that's just not acceptable. Not for a, a massive international sport, you know, with, with millions and millions of pounds at stake. That's not acceptable. No, and I, I was trying to think of that football analogy because you were talking, I'm not, I'm not, we're probably of a similar vintage, uh, you and I, mm -hmm. but I don't quite remember the 86 uh, World Cup. But right. um, of course, I think Maradona scored a second goal in that, in that match. He did. And so it kind of killed the game. Yeah, yeah. Which was sort of saying, well, okay, that was a handball, but the, they won yeah. the game based on that second goal. Correct. And 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 that's goal. almost and that's almost Max this year, I'd argue, you know, a fantastic championship, not not doing anything wrong. So, you know, it's quite quite weird that parallel between football and and Formula One. But I, I cut you off there. What was you no, <laughs> well, no, I, no, I was I think I was agreeing with that partially. I think yeah. This season, it seems like Max is, well, he's probably already won it, right? He could win it in the next race and we're sort of six races from the end. Yeah. I guess the thing that people can't square in their heads, right, is that, you know, when we're talking about, there'll be a load of Americans listening to this game. What are you talking about, Maradona, mm. uh, 86? Yes, I'm sorry. That's yeah. all right. England, England versus uh, Argentina uh, with a yeah. lot of players that no one other than us will remember. But, <laughs> uh, 
but anyway, um, I guess the thing about that match, trying to draw the analogy, is that it was a single kind of match. And England yes. lost a single kind of unit. They lost the game um, mm -hmm. because there was some cheating, but there was also some brilliance. And yep. I suppose the, the problem, personally for me, and, and it, I found Abu Dhabi almost an awakening, which, if not in a good way, um, okay. that, you know, when you watch, I don't know, football or some of the other sports that I might be into, ultimately when they cross the line, you, yeah, of course you get some refereeing howlers, yep. but the referee doesn't kind of, you know, you know when you're a kid and you're like, right, next goal yep. wins. or Yeah, uh, yeah, he doesn't you know, influence whatever, the outcome. So doesn't change yeah. the rules, sort of. Yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. so... I guess, like, best case scenario, what what could the FAA have done? Like, so Massey Massey's could have made a mistake, could have been influenced, let's say. In the yeah, uh, but that it wasn't up to the task, in my view. Um, the stewards yeah, ratified that yeah. decision, but what what would what would have been what would have been a you know better outcome after that? It, it seems difficult. Yes, it does, and and I, and I think I made this point in my column this week, and I think that um, you know. The situation we've got is that the F1 rulebook has been amended. There's so much red pen over this rulebook at the moment that it's become impossible to read. And, you know, I was talking to the FIA about um, the fiasco on Sunday night in Monza where it took four hours for them to publish the provisional grid, grid due to penalties. Mm. And, you know, I'm pretty, pretty, again, it's the same thing with me. I'm like... I'm furious because this is making sport look stupid. We should have had someone sorting this out. There should be someone in my brilliant ideal world. There'll be a man that pushes a button uh, within five minutes of, of qualifying and we get a grid and that's it. But of course it wasn't, it was four hours. And of course, you know, you've got people going away from the track that spent a lot of money to be there all day, not really knowing how it was all going to pan out and, you know, Will you know signs be on pole? Will Claire be on pole? Who's who's got it? Do you know what I mean? Um, it was it was bonkers. Um, but it goes back to the rule book, and that needs ripping up and redrawing because I think until we do that, there's going to be so much of this open to interpretation. And is this what the rules mean? Do we need to check this? Because that's what's taking all the time. This is why decision making from the FIA stewards is so you know it's not consistent. And we need to have clear rules that people understand, that the fans can understand as well, that we can get on with. Because at the moment, it's too convoluted. And all the while we're attracting new fans, F1, or, sorry, I mean FIA, will, will do something that shoots F1 in the foot. And you think, oh, my gosh, you know, try explaining that to someone that's just tuned in for the first time. You know this porpoising matrix. Now I, I don't I don't get involved in the in the technical stuff because that's not my bag. I know what I need to know um, in order to form an opinion. Okay, I get it, but it's not my most favourite subject. But they come up with this porpoising matrix and this woefully difficult calculation, and you're like, crikey, how on earth is this relatable to to any of the fans watching on on TV at home? It's just become too confusing and I think that's what needs to be dialed out in the form of a new rule book just to make it more concise and, and simpler for people to understand right I mean the, the sport is complicated um, mm -hmm. and you know you talked about being in the pub and you know writing articles in a way that's sort of explaining yeah or, or you might be like getting in the barbers or whatever and getting your hair cut yeah. and explaining yeah. what you do 
like the fact that you have a safety car and then you have cars unlapping and then you know blah 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 blah. Like to get to the yes. point where you're explaining to a lay person why it was wrong, yeah. Yeah. you've got to probably spend about two paragraphs. So yeah, and on, on so on the on that right. So we saw, mm -hmm. I think it was in Nuremberg, the or, or something like the Eiffel Grand Prix in 2020. Yeah, Massey finished the race under safety car and then said mm -hmm. to the press, "I had to finish the race under the safety car because those yeah. are the rules." Obviously yeah. at Monza, we've had, you know, people, some people sort of saying, oh, you know, what a boring finish. And the yeah, crowd was supposed being upset. Yeah, it was yeah. boring, right? Yeah. But but they followed the rules. So mm -hmm. just your opinion, what, what do you think was different in Abu Dhabi? And, you know, their interpretation that, well, the, the race director can do whatever they want because of this rule. Yeah. What do you think? What, why do you think Abu Dhabi was different? Well, this and this is the this is the thing. This is what we wanted from the report. We wanted to find out what actually happened, what conversations took place. Was he influenced? He needs to come out one day and say yes, I was, or no, I wasn't, and then we can form an opinion. Um, you know, the rules say that it, it should have been a, a safety car end to that race. I think, given the magnitude um, of everything, and at the time, I remember when that crash happened. I just thought it was a red flag. I just assumed that it'd be a red flag. The car was in uh, Latifi crash. It was in a tricky place. I just assumed it would be red flagged. And I did the same on, on Sunday. I think if I put myself in the shoes of the race steward, that's what I would have done. I mean, we've seen this year, even throughout all the championships, the very hint of an accident, the first thing they do is, you know, virtual safety car, safety car, or a red flag. There's no hesitation. They're very quick, very on it. But for some reason, on Sunday, there was no red flag. They were quite happy to let it play out towards the end. I was horrified to see the crane moving backwards onto incoming traffic on a blind bend. You know, I was in um, Japan when, when Jules Bianchi had his accident. And, you know, things like that will live with me forever. And I will, you know, always hate seeing big heavy machinery being on a track or, or at the side of a track moving um you know into in oncoming cars that that's not right i would have stopped the the race for that um getting getting back to the actual abu dhabi decision i have no no doubt that he was influenced i think you know the fact that um you know if you if you parrot someone so if you you know repeat what what they say if you listen to that the, the conversations that massey had he was using words which weren't his own words they were given to him by someone else and i just think that was obviously in his brain. He didn't know what to do. He absolutely panicked and he was influenced, which is why he manipulated the rules in the sense of all lapped cars, then all of a sudden the five lap cars. And I just think that he was just caught rabbit in the headlights, didn't know what to do. Um, and 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 unfortunately that that changed the outcome of, of the race. I think, you know, in his defense, and, and, and not many people are in his defense at all, because obviously, you know, the decision was wrong. You know, we need to remember that he was only a, you know, a, an apprentice, if you like, himself. He was supposed to be working under Charlie Whiting. But of course, Charlie Whiting suddenly passed away, didn't he, in, in, in Australia. Um, mm. And so and so Massey was thrust in at the deep end. And I remember talking to him at, at, at one race and it was, you know, where he was, where he was, it was before the Saudi, first Saudi race. Um, and it was all about the, the travel schedule and about just how far and, and where he was flying to and making personal checks on the track. And I was like absolutely stunned just to learn about his schedule. He was absolutely mm. burnt out. There was no doubt about it. You know, he was 
everywhere, all over the place, you know, checking and doing this and that and the other. And I don't suppose he had any time during COVID where he actually managed to get back to his family in Australia. So, you know, I think that, you know, there was a number of factors. And I just think that in the end, he was he was probably burnt out. But ultimately, I, I believe he was influenced during that race. And, you know, I think that it's testament to that, that the, the FIA acted and, and removed him from that position. Um, as I say, I just mm. think that we, the only thing we're missing is the the actual words from him just to let us know whether or not he was definitively, because it's all very well me speculating that he was influenced, but we, we won't know for sure until he actually comes out and says so. So, you know, mm. I long for that day where we actually get the get the answer. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I understand, although, you know, this is in the internet, so who knows whether <laughs> I'm just making it up. Um, uh, I understand that he signed a non-disclosure agreement. He did, so, yeah, which is which yeah. is also very, you know, very fishy. Um, mm. you know, that 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 again, I totally forgot about that point, but again, that that was one of the one of the, the horrible parts of it. You know, I, I, I don't yeah. like things like that, yeah. I mean, it's that's that's a bit of a smoking gun. I think I agree with you on the points you make about mm. parroting someone's words. It's you know, yeah. we went motor racing that, like, yeah, exactly yeah. what Jonathan Wheatley said, let's go motor racing. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, exactly it, that, yeah. 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 That's not exactly like none of us are psychologists. Maybe you are. I'm, I'm not. But no, no, I'm not. I'm not. It was. It was just. It was just strange. I, I've, I've got kids, and you know, mm. when they repeat <laughs> things that my wife says, you know, I know where they've picked it up. You know, it's as simple as that. You know, when I'm getting yeah. told off by her and then by the kids, I know that <laughs> I know where they've got their their information from, and and it's the mm. parenting thing. So yeah. yeah. And I mean, we'll we'll get off this topic because it, you know it's it's a big one, but we, we we can move on. But before we do, I mean, the final point for me is, and this is probably the awakening, the the way mm. in which the stewards then found a justification. Um, yeah, you know, they and and that Red Bull were in the room, and and actually, if you look at the appeal documents, there mm-hmm. is no um, there is no kind of remit or or standing for Mercedes to appeal, kind of bad judging they had to write something that was about red bull so they wrote one that was about max overtaking on the safety car and another one that was can't remember what it was about but essentially they couldn't say you michael massey messed up and we're appealing it they had to find so i i I feel like the you know the fia being beyond uh, beyond sort of scrutiny the 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 stewards being sort of complicit in trying to find the cover-up and then as you say three months Mm -hmm. later the report not really telling us anything is, is the most disappointing yeah, and 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 unfortunately, it's not the the only case. I mean, if you go back to that Ferrari engine twenty nineteen, was it? And um, you know they were blitzing everyone, and then they brought in this this technical regulation that that changed things, and then they didn't win again. Um, you know, and and then and then they they signed this this agreement with again the non disclosure. We're, we're keeping it silent, and you know no one's going to ever spill the beans. You know that sort of secrecy is outrageous. You know, we need we need openness in the sport, and I think that's where, you know, we we, we have a, a problem because I think that F1 and Liberty have been very open, and and as I keep mentioning, you know, new markets, new fans, and everything, and we need to have that openness, you know, from from mm. the from the governing body. There's no point doing these quiet deals on the side um, because otherwise it just it's just murky, and we we've seen stuff like that in the past, and it just doesn't sit well in the world of modern sport to have that those sort of things going on. Well, no, I, I completely agree. And I'll, I'll hand over to Dens now. But before I do, I'll say, like, we really rely on 
you know, you as a journalist and a, and a blue check mark uh, to be, <laughs> you know, putting this stuff in public as you're doing tonight um, to yeah, say, think, you know, I, to hold these guys to account. Yeah, and I, and I think that there is what I would say. I mean, I was I, I've got a, a, an interview lined up tomorrow with someone that's doing a book about journalism and and media and how things have changed. And I think that I, I would like to add the fact that the, the the role of journalism has has obviously changed a lot. Um, we've definitely seen fewer um, staff journalists um, attend races, mm. and, and certainly more freelance and people who are able to, you know, take on lots of gigs working for. A, uh, websites mainly um, and, and podcasts and radio and all sorts of stuff but of course the difficulty of being freelance is that you can't be mm. too um, critical but you know you, if, for example if you do work for Red Bull you, you can't really come down and, and slam them um, because obviously you rely on them for some of your money so it is quite difficult I think the role of a independent can we call them independent journalists I think that 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 sort of definitely reduced um in f1 if i think about you know my colleagues that i work with from the uk and the number of us that attend races but then i also look at france germany spain the the numbers have, have gone down so while the the press numbers and the people in the press room is probably around the same there tend mm. to be different types of journalists more for you know the 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 the, the, uh, the motorsports autosports the likes of those sort of publications um, and so there's only fewer of us, shall we say, um, who ask the awkward ones and, and are willing to, to get stuff in, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And the reason for that is because people, are, are perhaps, they're worried about the backlash that they're going to get on, on social media in the internet mm. or the mm. fact that they don't care um, or they're worried about, you know, maybe not getting their pass renewed next year. And, and mm. you know, I'm... I'm not worried about those things. So, you know, I'm quite fortunate that, you know, I, I have a pass and I hope that it's renewed and I can't see why they wouldn't, but I'm not living in fear <laughs> of that. Um, mm. And and similarly, I, I'm not really too worried whether a team like what I write or not, because, you know, I, I, you know, I'd like to think that I know them well enough that they know that I'm a moany, moany bloke. <laughs> and, um, you know, in a few weeks time, it's all going to be fine again when I, when I ask them to, you know, fill up my water bottle or, or go in there for a can of Coke. So, you know, it's as simple as that. I think that we, you know, we have a relationship, but, but the key is not being afraid. Yeah. And that, and, and that point you make is really fascinating because I observed, uh, you know, in the kind of three months, let's say after Abu Dhabi, there was almost like a, um, there were several moments where the media weren't saying, they're covering anything. And then as soon mm. as somebody, be it a, a driver or, or you know, yeah. A journalist such as yourself did say something then suddenly they were oh. like oh i can say that and then everyone yeah. said it. yeah i think i think that's that's right because the, the 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 tone was quite difficult to to take after abu dhabi like it was funny because the assumption was you're either in a red bull camp or a mercedes camp but the majority <laughs> yeah. of people weren't that way you know they weren't thinking like that at the time it was more of a what the hell is going on and and you know, mm. I think from from my perspective, it's always looking further down the road is to say, you know, are they going to protest it? Is this race going to be decided? Are we going to have a rerun? What, what What's going to happen? That's where my thought process was. It wasn't about, you know, well done, Max or tough Lewis. And, you know, the Massey stuff, although was difficult and, and quite hard to come to grips with at the time, I think we as journalists wanted to have a little bit more information for us to be um massively comfortable 
um, without condemnation of, of, of Massey and the FIA. And I think, as I say to you like a minute ago, like that's why we were disappointed with this report because we wanted to to hammer him if he indeed he was wrong. Um, you know, but but we, we never got to the bottom of that, and because it's all been covered up, as I say, we never know. So, yeah, tricky, eh? <laughs> well, no, and, and look, I appreciate the length you've just gone to there to explain your view and 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 how it felt as you were going through it in this and um, no i hand over to dens now thanks a lot ben appreciate no it hey well no i i was sitting there with my popcorn tuning into that one because you know i think it answered just a lot of questions that of everybody's just had in the back of their mind as well and then what i really appreciate with you as well ben is that you just say it as it is you know there's no kind of like you know no. payroll underneath the table kind <laughs> of like you know hidden agendas you just call it out as it is which is all we can ever really ask of the journalist you know so let's take it to kind of like light to know anyway because we like yeah. to do this as well with our special guests too we've got some interactive questions ben so yeah like in some of them, you'll be able to pick some drivers, but bear in mind, if you oh, pick that gosh. driver, you then won't be able to use them again for some okay. of the other questions. So right, there's an element okay. of strategy. Hopefully, you'll do better than Ferrari with that. But, oh, <laughs> but the first one, Ben, we'll go for it, is Taxi Dinner of Wade. So it's like a really bad spin-off. Of the well, hang on a minute. Taxi though. Dinner of what was the last one? Of Wade. <laughs> Oh, Void. So, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a pretty bad spin off of the legendary BBC yeah, show, yeah. Snug Mary of Void. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we didn't just... say the original version. Can I just say that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Don't worry, man. Your, um, your wife won't have to do anything for now. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, just, uh, Ben, just going to set the scene. So, imagine you've got to travel into town because you're going to have dinner yeah. with one of the drivers. And, you yeah. know, to get there, obviously, you have to call up an Uber and yeah. you also have to pick a driver for that. And then, whilst you're at the restaurant, having dinner with the driver you do want to have dinner with of course there's yep. one driver man you're giving him the side eyes and you're just trying to yep. basically avoid him at all costs so who are you right. gonna pick for your taxi okay, so dinner and are we doing this with current drivers on the grid yeah for this uh question it will be current drivers right okay right then i'm gonna um yeah i'm gonna keep my powder dry because um i'm not sure what your other questions are coming up but um the avoid one I can do. Um, I, I would comfortably say that's Lance Stroll. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've got, I've got no real relationship or anything with him. That's not, that's not because I'm nasty or hate him or anything. I just, he would be the one that I avoid. Um, in terms of my driver, uh, let's pick Fernando. Um, and in terms of who I'm going to have dinner with. I'm doing a book on Lando, so let's say Lando. Ooh, okay, that's yeah. exciting. You know, yeah. now, are there any details you can tell us about that at the moment, Ben? Uh, yes, yeah, out next year. Um, it's just a, a biography um, that I'm doing, uh, digging into his uh, life before getting into Formula One, and obviously, you know, his career. And you know, I know he hasn't he hasn't been in it very long, <laughs> but he is certainly an engaging character. Someone I spend quite a lot of time with um, every week. Uh, you know, we'll speak to him at a race and catch up with him. And so, yeah, I'm quite excited. It's with Icon Books, but it's out in the new year. Oh, that's going to be extremely exciting, Ben. And also, like, to tap into that a bit more, how would you yeah. describe working with Lando? Because at least on TV, we see Lando as this very, like, bashful driver yeah. he's kind of very self-deprecating and things yeah. don't go like the way yeah. they should yeah i think at times you know not in a bad way but i think 
he's just got that typical British sense of humor in a, in a yeah, way, just yeah, like with yeah. sarcasm and stuff like he, that. He, he is, he is what is exactly is what what you what you see is what you get, and 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 that's what's great. You know, he doesn't change from talking to the TVs as he does for us, as some drivers have done in the past. Very approachable. He's become um, very good at replying to questions. You know, I always think, you know, one of Lewis Hamilton's strengths is that you know you can ask him a question about something else in the world and he'll have an opinion on it so you know i think that's absolutely brilliant i can't name another sports star male or female who has such a wide range of opinions and isn't afraid to speak about them so when um you know taking a knee happened he was very good on that he was very good on trump um he's been he's been fantastic on a number of subjects and I, and, I, and I really do applaud that. And I think that Lando is now beginning. I'm not saying he's in the same ilk as Lewis in terms of his ability to speak about lots of different subjects. But he is able to talk a lot about, you know, mental health, for instance. You know, that's a very t- taboo thing, um, you know, generally and certainly in motor racing. It's almost seen certainly by some of the older um older heads in the paddock is almost a weakness but, but but Lando's obviously very open and I think that's very good um you know it's great for the sport it's great for him um that we've got someone like that who's, who's able to to talk and feel comfortable about talking about subjects so there we go that's my answer to the Lando question Ah, well, you know, it's insightful. I think, again, gives us so much more to it as well, Ben, because, like I said, too, with Lando, he's always an intriguing character, and there's elements of him that remind me of Lewis when he was kind of a bit younger, Damon Hill as well, in in the way that he goes about answering questions. But, you know, he's such a kind of, like, uh, cheerful chappy in in one aspect, but also very honest as well. It's almost like he doesn't have a filter, which I think is needed these days, too. Yeah, very good, yeah. Great to get that insight. Okay, so the next interactive question, Ben. Cool. So, the big gaffer from the sun gives you a yeah. ring, right, Ben? And um, you'll be glad to know you won't need your P45 because it's actually <laughs> going to put you on a different project. And that's going to be that he wants you to collaboratively work with Netflix as the creative director on a yeah. documentary yeah. about a rivalry in F1 or motorsport. Yeah. And for right. this question... You know, we, we had just the normal kind of Senna for us, louder yeah. hunt. You know, that's been well documented. So if you had to pick a rivalry with an F1 or just motorsport generally, yeah. you know, how would you spend the well, who would you spend the budget on basically? Um, they would never do it, but the one that I really loved was was working with Lewis and Nico. Um, you know, that Ooh. was a fantastic dynamic and watching that play out week after week was was really, really good. And, um, you know, that's a really good book to be done one day. Lewis has hinted about it in the past. He's like, one day you'll all understand when the book comes out. Um, you know, I think that that was, was wonderful. Um, you know, privy to a certain certain things, and you know, a bit of banter and a bit of rubbing each other up the wrong way. But there's so much more to it that we need to get stuck into one day. Oh, it's going to be really exciting, Ben. And like even this with Nico as well. Like I think I was watching one of his podcasts and he was t- mm-hmm. talking about like learning the gamership of like uh, winding yeah. people up and like playing yeah. psychological mind games and this whole thing about him 100%. basically having to share like a toilet with like Michael Schumacher yeah. in the, uh, in the yeah. pit store. And yeah. basically Michael like deliberately like hogging up the toilet yeah. to just unnerve yeah. Nico before yeah. Q1. 
And all of those things, I could see Nico probably like putting a feather in his cap and learning those things to try 100%, 100%. and unravel Lewis. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Jensen and Lewis, well, Jensen used to be like that with Lewis when they were together at McLaren. You know, there would be things that Jensen would do, um, you know, to try and get in Lewis's mind. Um, well, I was, I mean, I was just saying about the, the games, wasn't I? I mean, Jensen and Lewis used to play play games with them, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, and and Ben actually, could, you know, coming back off of our technical difficulties, like a Ferrari pit stop, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, could could you enlighten us, you know, as to some of the mind games going on there and stuff like that too, because you know that was like the, like the original Brit Sadies, I guess, before we obviously now have George and Lewis as well. Yeah, I I don't think the thing is I, I don't know if oh, I don't know if that still goes on at, at Mercedes. I think that you know George and Lewis is a very manageable relationship for Toto I think it's really hassle free um but that said I'm, I'm not sure whether that's the case at, at other teams uh you know I just know that in the past that, that, that certainly it was it was more um more common for the two drivers to play tricks on each other I'm, I'm convinced that probably Fernando plays tricks on uh on on Esteban and I'm sure that he will be doing that next year as well when he's with Lance Oh, for sure. And I can imagine just that dynamic too. And in a way, that's an interesting one as well, Ben, because I mean, like most people, I guess, on the outside kind of see the second driver in that Aston Martin as yeah. the one that's going to be kind of like walking a tight line to say, because obviously yeah. they're driving against the, the son of the guy that owns the team, essentially. Yes. But with Fernando and just the way he is, I just don't think he gives a damn. So it'll be interesting to just see like him and this like his never die attitude and his like sometimes his kind of like ways of not wanting to compromise, how that will work against like Stroh, which basically owns the team. Just yeah, how that yeah. dynamic works I mean, as well. I'm looking forward to seeing that and, and how that's gonna work. Um, you know, it's gonna be very, very interesting to watch that dynamic. Um you know, if you look at the way that that team's been been run and, and the way that, you know, the heavy recruitment that they've done, you know, they've spent, they've spent fortunes and fortunes on, on building that team. Um, but ultimately, as I was talking before about having, a, you know, a good championship, I think if you're, if you're serious about scoring decent points and winning championships, then you need to have two good drivers. And, and uh, you know, I think that Lawrence probably needs to make a decision then, you know, what he does with Lance, because I'm not, not convinced that, that Lance is, is consistently good enough at this moment in time to for them to win a championship. Yeah, and I think that's a fair kind of, um, you know, kind of conclusion on that one as well, Ben, because, yeah, with, with Lance has been interesting too. I mean, to say, you know, he's a bit more well, a pay driver is, is, is the obvious, but yeah. in his time, he's picked up one or two podiums. So yeah. kind of gets that. He's had the one very bizarre pole, pole lap as well at Turkey. Yes. I don't know if you remember that one, which yeah, yeah, again, yeah, was, was really there. bizarre. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I could only imagine this how like um, gloomy <laughs> it must have been with the rain and then just, yeah. you know, cars going off the circuit and then look at the timing sheets and it's like Lance with a very yeah. memeable kind of How's moment at the top. Exactly, you know, but uh, that's kind of the gift of Formula 1 at times as well. It does have the ability once in a blue moon to, to give does. us these bizarre results, you know, and yeah, the fact does. that absolutely. an underdog team as well, you know, on its day, you know, can have its moment of glory as well. So absolutely. 100%. And, and, and I think that that's part of the magic, isn't it? Is seeing a team like that just, you know, I don't want to say luck in, but obviously get the result that was unexpected. 
It's so true, you know, and it's it's a weird one as well, Ben, because my attitude towards Aston Martin as well as kind of like teeter tottered when they were like Force India and it was VJ Maria yeah. and Bob Fernley. I was like, these are the guys, you know. And yeah. then obviously when yeah. they had that consortium of Lawrence Stroll and the guys take it over, it was almost like watching like you know your favorite like Division One team as such, yeah, like, go commercial and sell out. See, we've gone back into that football analogy again, haven't we? we really have. We have. <laughs> but it's interesting, like Black said as well earlier, there's like there's so many parallels you could actually draw between the two sports. And they're you so can. fundamentally different in their own ways as well, but have yeah. contrasting similarities as well. So that yes. always has its thing too. But uh, the, the last interactive question, Ben, we'll go yeah. for is the hot lap experience day. So um, yep. going back to current drivers on the grid, Bear in yep. mind, now, you can't use Stroll, which I don't think you're going to use for this one anyway. No, I wouldn't. Uh, no, no. <laughs> not for a hot lap. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, like, you've got Alonso. You said that, not me, see? See? Uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, plausible deniability, I call that one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. You've obviously got Lando as well, and you mentioned yep. Alonso too. So, Ben, if you had to pick a hot lap experience day and you could pick any track, it doesn't even have to be a track that's on the current calendar, but you yeah. had to pick a current driver on the grid that we haven't already mentioned. Right. What track would you select and which, which driver would you go for for the hot lap? Okay, look, I, I've I've done a few hot laps and I've been fortunate enough to do a few hot laps with Lewis. So I'm going to take him out of the equation here before anyone starts saying, oh, you hate Lewis and this, that and that. <laughs> he, for me, is a, a phenomenal driver. The best driver in F1 history is how I ranked him. I think he's an absolute legend. Um, but through, if I'm being honest, I want to get in a car with someone that I've never been in a car with before. Um, so I would pick Max because of that reason. I've never been in a car. And if I was picking a track, um, I will pick Suzuka because I think that is the most complete track. Um, you know, I've been around a, a lot of them. But Suzuka, I've never been round in a car. I've walked around it, but never been round in a car. So that would be the the, the two that I would pick for that. Just yeah, and, yeah, and great choices there as well, Ben, because, you know, we talk about Suzuka and even that circuit, it, it has kind of like, you know, it, it's kind of dark moments. We, we touched on Bianchi earlier, which yeah, was very... Sure like heartbreaking but on top yeah. of that as well some iconic moments you know when you think mm -hmm. about uh, obviously Senna and Pruss going into that yeah. which again yeah. that infamous kind of moment oh Murray Walker as well you know when Graham Hill <laughs> took his championship and he was like yeah oh and Graham Hill crosses the line and I have to take a pause because I've got a lump in my throat yeah. <laughs> I was like wow yeah. does he could really hit like it almost make the goosebumps on your skin just grow <laughs> just that moment and and yeah just the nature of the circuit with 130r as well and the sweeping S's. yeah that's it that's it i mean there's loads to it and it is a really strange event to cover um the fans are fantastic it's just a different you know we spoke about traveling earlier on in, in the year and people say you know what's the best venue and for me i will always say austin because i like um <laughs> it's not so much about the racing i like barbecue food um and i like live music so purely from a city point of view that's one of the good ones but i think from a cultural point of view and being put out of my comfort zone so i equate it to going on holiday for the first time as a kid when you you know you sort of go abroad and for me it was to spain and and not understanding any of the language or any of the culture i still get that that feeling when i go to japan because i can't 
understand Japanese. The culture is very different. Um, when you're ordering food, you don't really know what you're going to get because you can't read the menu and you're going by a picture, which is probably about, you know, 400 years old or something. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's part of the fun. And I think that's what I really like about Japan, not just the, the, the food, the culture, but the, the, the fans are great as well. They really do sort of take it to the next level. There's lots of people dressed up in various different sort of, you, you see the hats with um, DRS wings, you know, rear wings on. And it's like, oh my God, I can't believe someone's made this. But yeah, they go to great lengths. People dressing up as racing drivers and all sorts of stuff. It's bonkers, but really, really good fun. Oh, Ben, I'm, I I do envy you, put it that way. I do envy you because it sounds just sensational and something I could only dream of. And, you know, speaking of dreams as well, you know, we do have a quite high contingent of Team LH fans that follow the podcast. So I'd be yeah. remiss if I didn't ask as well. What was the hot lap or what have the hot laps even been like with Lewis? Because I think yeah. I watched one where he did like a TV day at, uh, oh gosh, I can't believe it's escaped me now. Um, It's like the Mercedes-Benz Museum in... Yeah, yeah, I've done one, I've done one there at the Mercedes-Benz World. Um, yeah. I've done one at the Top Gear um, test track as well down in, in Dunsfold. So um, I think that's the two that I've done with, with Lewis. I've done Lando at uh, Cota. So in Austin, um, I've done a hot app with Jules Bianchi. Uh, I've done one with um, uh, Stoffel. I've done one with Stoffel Van Dorn. Done one a couple with Valtteri Bottas. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a few, um, but yeah, the Lewis ones are always good fun. He always destroys the tires, and I think that's part <laughs> of the fun. Um, I, I remember the guys at Mercedes World were like, you know, he was he just kept burning up these tires and bringing the cars back he's like look the tires are gone you know you know that whole bono the tires are gone <laughs> yeah am i living in the same world as this is it, is this what, what's what, what's happening but um you know it's quite it's quite funny they were just just going through these endless uh sets of oh, i shouldn't know continentals i don't know for sure it might be another brand but whatever on the car at the time we were just going through these tires and the guys were like look you're gonna have to stop him because we're running out of cars we're running out of tires <laughs> Oh, that's sensational. That is amazing. And again, like you mentioned too, that that is typically Lewis, you know, when he comes on the radio and he has his customary, oh no, my tyres are gone, or these tyres are finished, or, you know, can we change these tyres? Or there's always something with them. I remember remember the first one, the first one I did was um, when he was at McLaren, it was like, you know, one of the first meetings we had, and he was trying to frighten me, I think, because he was like, have you done one, one of these before? And I was like, no, not, not for a long time, you know. And he was like, okay, fine. And he was constantly turning his head to look at me to sort of gauge my reaction. <laughs> as he was going around. I think he was trying to make me cry or something. But, uh, um, he didn't succeed. So uh, I think we even have a little bit of respect at the end of that. But uh, yeah, it was quite funny. I did watch one of my colleagues actually end up crawling out of the car. Um, <laughs> wow. He was, he was left in a really bad way. Yeah, yeah dizzy and all sorts oh god well shout out to your colleagues as well because uh yeah i don't know if mercedes offer any counseling but uh, it might be required after a lap with lewis you know it's maybe um a side business or hustle i can probably entice the team to get into but uh yeah 
Oh, ben, this has been an incredible episode. Like, I'm so, we as a team, we're so thankful for your time as well because, you know, we've been able to have a dialogue on so many different, like, aspects of the sport, kind of the work that you do, life in the paddock yeah. and traveling with the, the circus to say as, what, as such as well. Kind of final question I always like mm. to kind of ask, like, the special guests like yourself, Ben, is, mm. you know, are there any other, like, you know, experiences you're looking forward to this year? And also... Uh, what advice would you give to younger Ben Hunt or just in general, the future generation of star journalists like yourself yeah, working yeah. their way through school and uni and, and kind of the process? Okay. Um, I'm always very open. If people ever want to, you know, reach out and say, you know, how do I get in um, to journalism? Because I remember being that, that, that student wanting to live out my dream. So, you know, if people do want to get in touch, then sure, by all means, reach out and I'll see if I can help out. I can't give you a job, but I can try and help point you in the right direction. So that's what I would definitely suggest. I think that a lot of people make the mistake that, um, you know, it's easy to get into F1. You just automatically get given the opportunity, but it most clearly isn't. You know, my, my route wasn't through F1. It was through um, football. And I remember covering... Um, a game at Canvey Island, which was nowhere near where I lived, when Chelsea were playing Barcelona. And everyone in the world was watching Chelsea and Barcelona, and I was working at Canvey Island. And I remember thinking to myself, crikey, you know, like, I wish I was watching that game. But it was quite a, a moment where I thought, you know, this is where I've got to start out. I've got to start at the bottom and work my way up. And that's what I did. And that's what I've seen with the colleagues of mine who are in Formula One now, who, who didn't go into football or other sports, but they started at lower, lower formula. So, you know, there's nothing stopping anyone from being a journalist. There's nothing stopping anyone from picking up a, a phone or, um, you know, the iPad or, or computer and send off some emails to press officers at, at championships lower down, think karting, think think your local go-kart track, think, you know, you know, W series, think Formula Three, and and start making inroads there because, you know, there's a whole load of stories there that people like myself aren't really looking at. You know, we're missing lots of stuff. So, you know, I know that the F3 is on and F2 is on the F1 bill, but, you know, I'm finding out stories about these drivers all the time. And, you know, they're, they're really good stories. And I think, you know, crikey, I should go and do that story. But, of course, you know, that story is only out there because someone has already done it or told me. Um, and, of course, it's being first and getting into that. So I think that a lot of people just assume, oh, well, if I'm not doing F1, I'm not interested. But if you are interested and you want to get to F1, then you've got to be prepared to do the hard work, make the contacts, because those drivers ultimately will be the guys that do come into F1 um, or race against other people in F1. Um, so, you know, they're, they're good contacts to have. Um, plus, I'd also say that it's easier to make your mistakes in those championships as well. You know, I made some horrendous mistakes earlier in my career and, you know, I, I, you know, I remember them and, and, and thinking, Christ, why did I do that? You know, I, I, I wrote a, I did an interview with Kevin Peterson, the former England um, cricketer. And I spelt his name wrong um, throughout the whole piece. And I submitted it to the Sun at the time. And I had a phone call. He's like, what's this? And I was like, well, it's my piece of Kevin Peterson. He's like, he spelt his name wrong all the way through. And I just, I don't know why I didn't check. But ever since then, you obviously check how you spell people's surnames. But it was good to 
make that mistake at the start of my career and not now um you know because you you learn along the way and i think that's that's the big mistake that people don't do they just assume that they can get to f1 straight away and they're going to get given this job but you've got to start somewhere and that somewhere usually is a little step away from formula one so that's really what i'd suggest um don't be afraid to get stuck in but obviously keep your level of expectation in check don't just assume that you're going to get to f1 straight away Gordon advice there, Ben. I absolutely second everything you said there as well, you know, and it's true, you know, for a lot of people, unless, you know, you have somebody on the inside or unless your dad's, uh, you know, Lawrence Stroh, there's no kind of like, you know, golden ticket to Charlie's Chocolate Factory for the majority of us. As you mentioned, you know, it's just being perseverant, learning from mistakes as well having a kind of measured approach and, and trying to develop and kind of focus at getting good yourself, you know, as you, yeah. you, you know, go through the ranks and the kind of hurdles of, of kind of progression. But as you mentioned there as well, like once you go through those motions and you finally get everything to click after so many years of dedication and practice mm-hmm. and really like, you know, crafting your, your kind of like um skill, then, yeah. you know, the world is your oyster in that regard as well. And it's just so aspirational for so many of our young audience listeners as well to take on board the, the feedback you've given as well, Ben. So yeah. huge, huge thank you to you, you know, for your time. And on top of that, no we'd problem. love to have you back on yeah, you know, nice for future you. episodes, you know, because it's yeah, been absolutely. great. One final question, just before mm. you go, and um, it's funny, Georgina makes me ask this one. I'm like, one day you're gonna get me punched by a really angry <laughs> Italian, but I think I think I'll be okay with you asking this one. Ben is um, cool. she loves to ask people, pineapple on pizza, yay yes. or nay? Hundred percent. My ooh, favorite. Ooh, ooh. I, I, do you know what? It's really. Funny. Ben, have it's I really told you yet yeah, that I really love you? I love you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, right. I'm going to tell you a little story because I know I've been talking loads, but um, I was in Italy obviously last week and we were talking and and I'm a big believer that Italian food is very, very highly rated and I don't necessarily subscribe to that view. I'm not a massive pasta fan. I'm not a massive pizza fan. But that said, um, my favourite pizza, and I had people absolutely disgusted with me last week um is a pizza i had at my mum and dad's house near where they lived and it's called a showboat and it's actually got banana on it so it's got chicken um or tomato base it's got cheese chicken uh sweet corn uh onion and banana what was it taste like was it like a um, crunchy flavor no it's the banana's soft it's cooked so it's soft banana um, but yeah, it's 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 next level to, to pineapple. So uh, give it a try. Don't don't be afraid. And if there are any uh, you know pizza companies out there, Domino's, <laughs> Pizza Hut, Papa John's, everyone's, everyone's just switched off now because they think that he's just some weird bloke that has banana on a pizza. <laughs> you, can't, you, can't, you can't knock it until you try it. Honestly, it's the best. <laughs> Either that, Ben, or actually we might, after this episode, Georgina might have to file a patent to actually get that absolutely just like copyrighted within the stripping the yeah. dipping family. Because, yeah, that is, uh, actually I'm going to let like F1 Black have a word on that too. So, Black, <laughs> you, you missed the best part, man. Like Ben is an advocate, not only just for pineapple on pizza, but banana on pizza. Thoughts? Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Um, well, 
<laughs> I know why my internet is completely messed up. There was a disturbance in the <laughs> time continuum. What? Banana on pizza? You mean banana yeah, or plantain true. or what? What? What's going on? No, no, no. It's it's um, it's uh, it's just normal banana. Um, yeah. I'm actually trying to Google it now, actually. Um, I'm not sure they do it anymore. I'm gonna, let me find it. Yeah, I mean, it was just great. It had banana in it, chicken, um, all the ingredients, which I mentioned earlier on. I'm just, honestly, I can't find it. I was, I'm, I'm desperate to find this. Ben, you might have to delete your search history after. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, it wasn't, it was, it was great. Absolutely fantastic. Okay. That's we'll a new recommendation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Well, on that revolutionary bombshell, to say yeah. the least. The pineapple then, banana bombshell. <laughs> it's been a banana bombshell. You know, it's like throwing a banana peel at somebody on Mario Kart. That's the level of bombshell we just had. But uh, Ben... You, you know been... what I'm thinking right now? I'm just thinking what would Vincenzo would think? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, just to give Ben context too, like Vincenzo is like, uh, again, somebody kind of in our Twitter space that's a huge, like, Ferrari head. He says Ferrari like... He has like oh, right. everything that is like quintessentially Italian is this Vincenzo Landino. So somebody will have to clip this up as well and send it to him. He, he will not dig my pizza choices, will he? <laughs> oh yeah, I think um I think you'll be having some stern words. Yeah. <laughs> I don't oh, think I'll, I don't. He probably won't invite me back. <laughs> I think the Tafosi will probably be after you as well on this one, Ben. But yeah, you know, just know though, we're, we're in your corner. We're in your corner. <laughs> but Ben, uh, it's been sensational to have you on, man. Like you're, you've been a great guest. You put on, put us onto this so much. I think that there's something in this episode for just everyone, which is amazing, you know. And um, we're super excited just to continue to see the work that you do as well. Just keep it up, as you mentioned as well. Don't let the haters or trolls, uh, you know, put you off. Haters gonna hate and potatoes gonna potate, as uh, one blacks kind of a uh, screen name says as well. But yeah, Ben, any final words and where can our adoring fans find you as well on social media? Um, I'm mainly on Twitter uh, and Instagram. Um, my Twitter is Ben J Hunt. Uh, that's my handle, and my stuff is published at the Sun, um, the UK newspaper. Well, there we go, guys. You heard it from the legend himself, Ben Hunt. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Ben, you know, and we've had some really, I, I, I always say this, but I think this is kind of topped up on the leaderboard, like just the variety of conversations and just the way we're able to kind of extrapolate it all and, and kind of discuss it was amazing. So, you know, we, we were very excited to hopefully be able to bring you on again, maybe perhaps towards the end of the season where yeah, sure. more of the madness unfolds. But uh, oh, it's been amazing, Ben. Thank you so much for your time. Good stuff. No and, problem. Ah, oh, just thank you so much. And uh, guys, you know, from us here at uh, Stripping the Dipping, it's been your boy Denzel Clarkson, aka MG Dens, aka BMDM, the modern day Morgan Freeman. And uh, yeah, I'm with my dynamic host as well, F1 Black. Black, any final words? Pass to me at the end, and then I always pass the hot potato back because I hate closing episodes. But yeah, final <laughs> words is. My internet is made of banana and pineapple, and I'm sticking to that. Uh, and Ben, absolute pleasure. Uh, really great uh, that you're kind of 
leading the blue checkmark brigade um, and, and keeping, you know, the people in F1 honest. And that's all we can ask for. So thank you. Um, no problem. No worries. And back to you, Dens, to close out, because you know I hate closing the episode. Uh, I had to do it to you anyway, bro. I had to. I had to. But yeah, guys, as always, make sure that you check us out, uh, Stripping the Dipping, on um, Twitter, on YouTube. We're trying to get our numbers up. We're trying to get that engagement, you know, because there are lots of, uh, you know, prima donna uh, F1 drivers that won't speak to us because, uh, yeah, we need those numbers up. So if you can, please, you know, share like get you know your friends or friends to check it out as well we try and you know have as many interesting and engaging conversations as we can and i think you know ben is just one of the superstar guests as well that you know kind of helps us on this journey that we're on as well so huge shout out to ben and a great shout out to our listeners as well until next time guys it's been amg dens from stripping the dipping and we're out peace